Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden says the leader of al-Qaeda has been killed. The terrorist Ayman al-Zawahiri was Osama bin Laden's right-hand man. A former diplomat compares the deadly strikes on these two masterminds of terror. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrives in Taiwan, ignoring threats from the Chinese Communist Party. The White House trying to ease tensions, saying there's no change in U.S. policy. Five states are holding primary elections today. Republicans in Michigan will decide who will face off against Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The price at the pump continues to go down across the U.S., less than $4 on average now in almost 20 states. The United States killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a strike in Afghanistan over the weekend. That's what President Joe Biden said on Monday. It's the biggest blow to the militant group since its founder, Osama bin Laden, was killed in 2011. My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed the emir of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. None of his family members were hurt, and there were no civilian casualties. I'm sharing this news with the American people now after confirming the mission's total success through the painstaking work of our counterterrorism community and key allies and partners. Zawahari, an Egyptian surgeon who had a $25 million bounty on his head, succeeded bin Laden as al-Qaeda leader after years as its main organizer and strategist. Zawahari helped coordinate the 9-11 attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people in New York City. Biden also said he masterminded or played a key role in attacks on the USS Cole in the year 2000 that left 17 sailors dead, as well as on two African U.S. embassies two years prior, which left hundreds dead and thousands more wounded. That no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. A Taliban spokesman confirmed the weekend strike and strongly condemned it. That drone attack is the first known U.S. strike inside Afghanistan since U.S. troops and diplomats left the country in 2021. It could also solidify Washington's assurances that it can still address threats from Afghanistan even without a military presence in the country. Republican and Democratic lawmakers lauded the weekend strike. But Zawahiri's presence in Kabul now raises questions about whether he received sanctuary from the Taliban after they swept back to power last year. One U.S. official said senior Taliban officials were aware that Zawahiri was in Kabul and said Washington expected the Taliban to abide by an agreement not to allow al-Qaeda fighters to reestablish themselves in the country. Next, we get some analysis on the strike that took out al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. A former deputy assistant secretary of foreign affairs breaks this down for us. He discusses what this means for security from terrorists and for the Biden administration, as well as how the strike was different from the one that took out Osama bin Laden. Joining us now is Bart Marcois, who is a former Bush administration official. Thanks for coming on the show, Bart. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What does al-Zawahiri's death mean for global security from terrorists? Oh, it's a, it's a huge step, honestly. I, I don't like Joe Biden and I don't like his administration, but I have to give them credit for having uh, done this. Very serious accomplishment. Zawahiri was the, the mastermind, real mastermind behind al-Qaeda. 
He was the organizer. Bin Laden was the charismatic leader, and people loved him and adored him, the Al-Qaeda members. Uh, but Zawahiri was the guy that, that came in and trains run on time. And this is a signal to the world that uh, Al-Qaeda really is not much of a force anymore. So after 9-11, it took about 10 years for the U.S. to take out Osama bin Laden. And now about 21 years later, al-Zawahiri has been taken out. Can you give us an idea as to how hard it is to take out these high-profile terrorists? Yes, they are very sophisticated at hiding from us. Our, our um, strength, our ability to, to um, uh, reach these guys depends largely on signal intelligence, uh, SIGINT, uh, they call it. And they learned back in the bin Laden days, just don't use cell phones, don't use, uh, don't use any electronic communication. And so we had to go with human intelligence, which is much more difficult and much harder, and it takes a long time to develop. Uh, this is the result of a collection effort by the CIA that literally has taken 20 years to develop. I have no idea who or, or how, but I can tell you that this was human, human intelligence that brought this to bear. We also have been limited in our ability to strike because of our innate um, horror of civilian and I'll, I'll go into that in a little more detail. Yes, please explain exactly what you mean by that. And, and you know, what, where we have to take out the bad guys while also protecting civilian life. Yes. Well, what we've seen here, this attack marks a sea change in American strategy and tactics for taking out terrorists. When we took out bin Laden, in order to minimize the... We knew where bin Laden was for, for a couple of months, several months, and we knew where he was many times before that, and we could easily have just sent a great big Tomahawk missile in and blown him to bits, but it would have killed hundreds of other people around, and it would have been seen as an unforgivable act of war and aggression by the entire world. When we got bin Laden, we sent in a team of SEAL Team 6 uh, operatives, a multi-million dollar, tens of million dollars uh, um, operation, took months to plan, uh, had to do a mock-up of the building where he was, uh, a, a stealth attack, and in the end, he was killed with a few rifle shots. But to get the rifle within range took all of that effort. Here, we've used an R9X missile fired from a uh, fired from a uh, R9X Hellfire missile fired from a Predator drone or from a Predator drone, and so there were no people inside, no U.S. personnel inside Afghanistan. We found out where he was, and the R9X does not have an explosive warhead. It has a, a warhead of blades. So you've got six steel blades that spin at, um, at very high speed, and we cut him to bits. He stepped out on a balcony, and we cut him to bits. And his wife and children and grandchildren, wife and daughter and grandchildren, were in the same house. Nobody was injured but Zabahari. He was cut up, and nobody else was not even the building was significantly damaged. Certainly is a very effective precision strike. Bart Marquois, former diplomat, thank you so much for your analysis on this. Thank you.
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has landed in Taiwan. It marks a significant show of support for the Democratic island, despite China's threats of retaliation over the visit. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The Chinese regime rattling its sabers ahead of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, which Beijing claims as part of its territory. China's UN envoy said it would undermine U.S.-China relations. Uh, such a visit is apparently very much dangerous, very much provocative. Pelosi kicked off her Asia trip in Singapore Monday. She met with members of Malaysia's parliament in Kuala Lumpur on Tuesday. She arrived in Taiwan later in the day. A prominent hawkish voice in China suggested that if U.S. fighter jets escort Pelosi's plane into Taiwan, China's military should, quote, forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane. If ineffective, then shoot them down. The tweet has now been banned. He doesn't represent Beijing's official stance, but state media have been promoting his threat. It's not just that Pelosi would be the most powerful U.S. official to visit in 25 years. Beijing also sees her as a hostile figure. She's been a staunch critic of China for decades. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Monday called on Beijing to act responsibly. If the speaker does decide to visit and China tries to um, create some kind of uh, crisis or otherwise escalate tensions, that would be entirely uh, on Beijing. Although Washington does not have official diplomatic ties with Taiwan, it is bound by U.S. law to provide the island with the means to defend itself. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says Pelosi has visited Taiwan before without incident, and nothing has changed about the United States policy. There is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit consistent with longstanding U.S. policy into some sort of crisis or conflict, or use it as a pretext to increase aggressive military activity in or around the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. Monday said it won't be intimidated by Beijing's saber-rattling. Pelosi also plans to visit South Korea and Japan. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Five states are holding primary elections today. Those are Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. Let's take a look at some of the key races. In Michigan, Republicans will choose a candidate to face off against Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Five political newcomers are competing in a tight race. Former President Trump on Friday endorsed conservative commentator Tudor Dixon. Trump also jumped into a House race in a district currently represented by Republican Congressman Peter Mayer. He was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. The former president has endorsed businessman and missionary John Gibbs, who worked in the Trump administration. Democrats don't want Peter Mayer to win that primary. They want this, this, uh, this Gibbs guy to win because he is Trump-endorsed, much more conservative, um, and has taken some positions that that electorate will not, it's not that they won't stand for it, but they don't fit the district, right, now that it's Democratic-leaning. And over in Kansas, voters will decide whether the state will continue to allow access to abortion. Kansas is the first state to vote on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The election commissioner of Wyandotte County says putting the question on the ballot has had an impact. And we're getting a lot of um, increased voter turnout because of it. I think uh, early voting as of this morning, we have about 2,000 more early voters than we did back in 2018. And we have a little over 1,000 more um, voters who requested a ballot than we did back in 2018. So we definitely have an uptick in, in, in uh, voter registration and people getting out to vote. In Missouri, the race for Republican Senate nomination is between former Governor Eric Gretens and Eric Schmidt, the state attorney general. 
On Monday, Trump made an unusual statement saying he's endorsing Eric. Both Gretens and Schmidt claimed Trump's endorsement in tweets sent just minutes apart. When asked for clarification, a Trump spokesman said the statement speaks for itself. In Arizona, voters will pick between Trump-backed gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Karen Taylor Robson, who has the backing of former Vice President Mike Pence. For Democrats, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs is facing Marco Lopez, a former Obama administration official and former mayor of Nogales, a border city. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey will not run again due to term limits. And in Washington state, the 3rd Congressional District is represented by Jamie Herrera Butler, who voted for Trump's impeachment in 2021. She's facing a primary challenge from Joe Kent, a former Green Beret officer who's been endorsed by Trump. The longest prison sentence regarding January 6th so far, more than seven years for illegally entering the Capitol building. The family of the convicted man says the sentencing isn't right. This is what this is, is political persecution. We are patriots. Guy was a patriot that day. He will always be a patriot. On Monday, Guy Reffitt was convicted of entering the U.S. Capitol with a holstered handgun, helmet, and body armor. According to a court filing, prosecutors said Reffitt was a member of the Texas Three Percenters Militia Group. They say he told other members that he planned to drag House Speaker Nancy Pelosi out of the Capitol building by her ankles. However, his daughter said during the press conference that her father usually isn't like that and that they don't understand what happened. A federal prosecutor called Reffitt a domestic terrorist and initially requested a 15-year prison sentence. And gas prices. The cost to fill up your car continues to drop, and the price for American oil is at its lowest point since February. While low oil prices are good for the consumer, they could be a sign of an incoming recession. According to the American Automobile Association, or AAA, the national average for a gallon of gas fell to $4.21 on Monday. That's 14 cents less than last week. Monday marked the 48th day in a row where gas prices have declined. The head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy says we continue to see average gas prices falling in every state, with the national average down for the seventh straight week. Even better, nearly 20 states have also seen their average decline to $3.99 or less. But according to AAA, gasoline prices below $4 a gallon at nearly half of the gas stations around the country can lead to a rise in demand which could then lead to a hike in prices. Meanwhile, American crude oil is at $94 per barrel. That's the lowest point it's been since last February. Analysts say one reason for that is that Europe, Japan, and China are signaling less demand. Some analysts also point to this week's meeting of OPEC Plus officials. They'll discuss whether to follow President Biden's call to produce more oil. Joe Petrowski, the former CEO of Cumberland Farms Gulf Oil Group, told Fox News that the price for both oil and gas will soon go up. He believes the United States will soon be in a recession, which could impact the demand for fuel. I really do believe as we go through the summer, we're going to see crude reach back to $150 a barrel. In oil before Labor Day will be at that level and retail gasoline prices will exceed $5 again. A recession is often defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth in the GDP. Just ahead, a huge win for health workers fighting a vaccine mandate. They're set to receive $10 million from a hospital in Illinois. Their complaint involves not being allowed religious exemptions. And an underground network of tunnels in Houston stretches more than six miles and allows Houston's workforce to move about the city in an air-conditioned environment. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News.
At least two people have died from a raging California blaze. The McKinney Fire in Northern California exploded in size to nearly 87 square miles after erupting Friday. It is California's largest wildfire of the year so far, and officials have not yet determined the cause. But it's still just one of many fires burning in the region. Two bodies were found inside a charred vehicle Sunday in the driveway of a home near a remote community. The fire continues to burn in the Klamath National Forest on the border with Oregon. On Monday, heavy rain helped dampen the fire, but it still threatened structures. So far, it has burned more than 100 structures, ranging from homes to greenhouses. About 2,500 people remain under evacuation orders. The fire remains at 0% containment. Montana, Idaho, and Nebraska are also battling wildfires. More rain continues to devastate Kentucky's flooded mountain communities. The governor warns that more disaster could follow. He said that high winds could knock down trees and utility poles. Governor Andy Bashir says the death toll is now at 37, and hundreds of people are still unaccounted for. The governor said a heat wave is next after the rain stops and that he wants to be sure people are in stable situations by the time it comes. But right now, more than 12,000 utility customers have no power and at least 300 people are in shelters. The flood started last week when 8 to 10 inches of rain fell in 48 hours. It affected parts of eastern Kentucky, southern West Virginia, and western Virginia. Four more inches of rain fell Sunday. President Biden declared the flooding a federal disaster. The White House has a national monkeypox response coordinator now. President Joe Biden formally named Robert Fenton to the role Tuesday. From here on out, he'll be coordinating the federal government's response to the outbreak, including increasing the availability of tests, vaccinations, and treatments. Fenton comes from FEMA, where he was a regional administrator overseeing Arizona, California, Hawaii, and Nevada. The CDC's director for AIDS prevention will serve as the deputy coordinator. The first U.S. monkeypox case was confirmed May 17th, and there are more than 5,800 probable or confirmed cases now. Healthcare workers in Illinois who sued their hospital over its vaccine mandate are slated to receive a $10 million settlement. About a dozen workers at North Shore University Health System say their employer was breaking the law by not granting religious exemptions to the mandate. We hear from the legal group who represented the plaintiffs. Please welcome Roger Gannam, who is the Assistant VP of Legal Affairs at Liberty Council. Thanks for joining us, Roger. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. What are the implications of this settlement paying Illinois health care workers who sued over the vaccine mandate? Well, this is the first of its kind settlement uh, against a private employer for imposing a vaccine mandate and denying religious exemptions on a mass scale. So uh, this will certainly set an example for other employers uh, who have maybe been uh, watching and and waiting to decide how to handle uh, the religious exemption claims of their own employees. What we hope will happen is this will loosen up those employers who uh, have been stingy with their religious accommodations uh, from these vaccine mandates uh, and create an atmosphere where no one has to face the choice between their religious beliefs and their jobs. Do you think $25,000 is enough for these employees? I mean, these are the ones that resigned or were fired. Does it restore them to where they were before the mandate? Well, this is a great settlement for for everyone involved, but particularly those people who were fired or had to resign because their religious accommodations were denied, uh, they will be given the opportunity to, uh, to reapply for their former positions at the same level of seniority, the same level of pay, uh, and things like that. But it's really hard to put a dollar figure on the, the uncertainty and humiliation and shame that any employee faces 
uh, from from being fired for wanting to to uphold their their religious beliefs. And so uh, the twenty five thousand dollar approximate number uh, is good compensation for them as class action settlements go. It's very good compensation. Um, but you know, I would never say that it's ever enough to compensate someone for uh, for facing that choice. Of, uh, of their job or their religious beliefs. And so uh, we think we, we've accomplished the best settlement that we can uh, under all the circumstances. And, and we expect that the, the recipients of those funds will be, uh, will be quite satisfied with the outcome. We've seen the picket signs, no jab, no job, you know, from hero to zero. What do these employees do now? Well, hopefully uh, they'll be able to to walk back into their their former employer if they want to, um, with a sense of vindication that um, that their rights have been recognized by the company. Because after all, 10.3 million dollars is no small amount. So the company is is making a statement that uh, that that it does value these employees and that they are. Uh, welcome back, and hopefully that will reset the atmosphere uh, for these employees and give them the opportunity to do the healthcare work that they love doing uh, and that has been so vital in dealing with COVID uh, throughout the last couple of years. Are there other legal challenges similar to this one? Do we expect more settlements? Well, uh, we're in heavy litigation against the states of Maine and New York and some providers in those states uh, because of state-level vaccine mandates that have denied religious accommodations. And we're also seeking to represent classes of military service members uh, against the military COVID vaccine mandate, which, like North Shore, who we just settled with, uh, the military has basically had a policy of deny them all and not granting any religious accommodations. And so we hope to, uh, to get to the conclusion of these litigations uh, in the near future, but uh, there's a lot of work left to be done. And what implications does this settlement have for First Amendment rights across the country? Well, again, uh, when a private employer has to pay $10.3 million uh, because it violated religious liberty rights, that sends a message to all employers that it's going to be expensive uh, to deny those rights. Uh, hopefully, that will make a difference uh, and cause other employers to think twice before denying religious accommodations uh, for these shot mandates. Roger Ganim, Liberty Council, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Next, Texas, an underground network of tunnels is allowing Houston's workforce to move about the city 20 feet below the sidewalk. The air-conditioned environment stretches more than six miles. And today's Andrew Thomas reports. The tunnel system covers 95 blocks and connects Houston's downtown offices. Tourists uh, tend not to find the tunnel system. They tend to walk around street level looking for where everything's at. Lots of people will mention before joining us on tour that downtown Houston looks like a ghost town. Um, and you'll be able to find all your amenities, everything that you're looking for, from restaurants to getting your nails done, haircut, down below here in the tunnel system. The tunnels feature restaurants, shops, banks, hotels, and more. The tunnels are open to the public during normal business hours, but they're owned by the buildings above them. It's really through cooperative agreements between adjoining property owners that, that people can connect to each other's tunnels. Uh, so it is uh, very much a kind of private system uh, rather than a public system. The city's tunnel system started in the 1930s with a single tunnel connecting two downtown movie theaters. Architecture historian Stephen Fox said additional tunnels were bored through Houston's soil in the 1950s and 1960s. By the 1970s, developers began to connect the tunnels to form the greater underground system. Whenever I'm tired of something that's right there, like if I want to go get food and I want to change my mind, I don't have to get in my car and drive all around. I can just easily access the tunnels and I'm protected by the weather, by traffic, by humidity, especially, you know, Houston. But it makes it super easy to go to wherever I want to. 
Lucia Heron owns Greenworks Flowers, a floral shop located in the tunnels. She said Houston's hot and rainy weather is a perfect reason for downtown workers and tourists to explore underground. Too much rain or too much heat is what makes these type of places functional for everyone. So it's fabulous to have the tunnel. It allows them to communicate between buildings for the food, for the gifts, for anything they need. With temperatures reaching the high 90s this week, the tunnels offer a welcome refuge from the heat. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, a sweeping spending bill totaling over $200 billion has passed both chambers of Congress, but it seems not everyone is for it. What does it include? The U.S. plans to work with its longtime ally Japan on semiconductor research that's amid the global chip shortage. Find out more right after the short break. Great to have you back with us. A sweeping spending bill totaling over $200 billion has passed both chambers of Congress. Some lawmakers hope it will increase America's edge in semiconductor manufacturing. Others are against it, saying it won't help the U.S. compete with China. Where will the funding go? Let's take a closer look. It's laid upon the table. The House has passed an over $200 billion bill aiming to boost U.S. competitiveness in the semiconductor industry. On this vote, the yeas are 243, the nays are 187, one member voting present. The motion is adopted. The bill now heads to President Biden's desk for him to sign into law. Here's his reaction to the news. The House has passed it. Officially dubbed the CHIPS Act of 2022, the measure would give roughly $52 billion to domestic semiconductor or microchip manufacturers. About $100 billion would go to the National Science Foundation to establish regional technology hubs. Why are semiconductors important? Experts say these tiny chips are the hearts and brains of all other electronics. The semiconductors are vital to every defense application from drones to hypersonic missiles. Uh, they're driving the global digital economy, everything from artificial intelligence to wind turbines or electric vehicles or solar panels. Despite the importance, over 80% of the chips used in the U.S. aren't made on home soil. Most of the nation's chip manufacturing has shifted to Asia, especially Taiwan. The island also manufactures over 90% of the world's most advanced microchips. Because of that, the pandemic-driven microchip shortage has caused massive disruptions. For one, the auto industry is projected to lose $200 billion because of a lack of chips. Back to the chip bill, its key goal is to maintain a competitive edge with China as Beijing pours money into its own domestic chip production. One of the main drivers behind the bill is Senator Todd Young of Indiana. What we're going to see in the very near term are more semiconductor uh, manufacturing companies announcing a manufacturing presence on our American soil so that we're no longer dependent on other countries for the sourcing of, of these computer chips. Despite that support, 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer stripped a provision at the last minute. It would have blocked funded manufacturers from outsourcing production to China. So that means firms will be able to outsource the manufacturing of those semiconductors to China. Before its passing, the bill also faced controversy. Senator Rick Scott explained why he's against it. Let me give you an example. Intel Corporation, I'll tell you how it's going to impact them. They're going to get, I think, $4 billion, all right? On top of $4 billion to build a plant, they get a $4 billion tax write-off, and they get a 25% tax credit. So they get all that. Now, what do they have to do? There's no obligation that they build a specific chip that we need. There's no quotas. Uh, there's no standards. You know, they're a big investor in China. They can continue to invest in China. They can continue to expand in China. When China invades Taiwan, which I hope they don't, they can continue to do business in China, which they said they would. The new CHIPS Act follows a version of the measure that was approved in January 2021. Since then, Democrats and Republicans have failed to reach an agreement on how to appropriate funding for the initiative. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the CHIPS bill will increase the federal budget deficit by $79 billion over 10 years. The United States and Japan launched a new high-level economic dialogue on Friday. It's aimed at pushing back against China and countering the disruption caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The latest point of cooperation, semiconductor chips. We hear more from NTD's Tiffany Meyer. Let's take a closer look at semiconductor cooperation. The United States and Japan plan to establish a new joint research center for next-generation semiconductors or microchips. That's amid the global shortage. Officials from the two longtime allies met Friday during an economic meeting in Washington. Chips are an essential component in nearly all electronics, from coffee machines to smartphones to fighter jets. The new R&D organization is meant to establish a secure source of them. Currently, Taiwan makes over 90% of the world's most advanced chips. But there's concern about supply stability as tensions rise between Taiwan and China. Beijing views the island as a renegade province and has threatened to take it by force. Details of the plan were not immediately released, but Japan's Nikkei Shimbun newspaper said research of two nanometer semiconductor chips would begin in Japan by the end of this year. It's said to include a prototype production line and should begin producing semiconductors by 2025. The U.S. Air Force has temporarily grounded its F-35 fighter jet fleet. That's due to a potential problem with the jet's ejection seats. According to an Air Force spokesman, the issue involves explosive cartridges in the ejection seats, which help eject the pilot. These ejection seats were all made by Martin Baker Aircraft. The company says the problem is only found in F-35 fighter jets. Israel has also suspended training flights of its 35 F-35s. The country's Air Force is set to evaluate the whole fleet in the coming days. The F-35s are the most powerful fighter jets ever built. The U.S. Air Force currently owns 348 of them. And coming up, NATO tries to help keep the peace in Kosovo. Tensions have risen between ethnic Serbs who refuse to recognize the Kosovan government and its regulations. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. A Reuters correspondent in Russia's Supreme Court reports that Russia has designated Ukraine's Azov Regiment as a terrorist group. The group could face harsh consequences in a Russia-captured region of Ukraine. The regiment has been one of the most prominent Ukrainian military formations fighting against Russia in eastern Ukraine. 
Russian state propaganda has compared Azov fighters to World War II-era Nazis. And the Nazis' defeat by the Soviet Reunion remains a core part of Russian national identity. Many of the regiment's personnel were captured by Russian forces when Mariupol fell in May after an almost three-month-long siege. Officials in the Donetsk region, now captured by Russia, said in May that captured Azov regiment fighters could face the death penalty. That's because the area is now operated by the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic and its laws. Hope appears to be around the corner for Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan as the U.S. and Russia negotiate a prisoner swap. But the negotiating is being brought into question. Could releasing a convicted international arms dealer help Russia's military campaign in Ukraine? Entity's Jason Perry has the story. One of the prisoners Russia wants to exchange for Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan is Victor Boot, also known as the Merchant of Death. In 2008, he was caught on camera agreeing to sell weapons to undercover agents that were to be used to kill U.S. troops. Bout was an arms dealer, but he wasn't just trading and dealing arms. He was giving those arms to terrorist organizations. Former federal prosecutor Nathan Williams explained to NTD how the arms dealer could be released. And it's not uncommon for federal sentences to be reduced for a variety of reasons. And certainly um, bringing back Americans um, back to their country is, is, is a valid, I think, international and, and domestic um, reason to reduce sentences. Although the U.S. has not confirmed who they offered in exchange for Griner and Whelan, the attorney of the convicted arms dealer said this. I'm confident that this is going to get done. Williams explained the implications if Boot returns to Russia. I think he will help them however they, they can get help from him. And so, yeah, he has obviously experience in, in arms trading. He has experience with multiple governments. And, you know, he had some levels of success dealing arms on an international level. Um, I imagine Russia would use him any way possible. And if he has a role in, in, in helping them with the Ukraine, I'm sure he would, he would take advantage of that. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby commented on Russia's attempt at a counteroffer that includes a former colonel in Russia's spy agency. He was convicted of murder and is currently serving a life sentence in Germany. It's nothing more than a bad faith attempt by the Russians publicly to avoid what is a serious proposal, one that we aren't making detailed in public and has been on the books for several weeks. We reached out to the Department of State and they said, in order to preserve the best opportunity for a successful outcome, we're not going to comment publicly on any speculation. Jason Perry, NTD News. NATO-led peacekeepers supervised the removal of roadblocks protesters had set up in North Kosovo. Political tensions have recently flared in the area. Gravel-filled trucks and tankers were removed on Monday from roads leading to a border crossing with Serbia. This after the Kosovo government postponed implementing a rule that would oblige ethnic Serbs, who are a majority in the north, to apply for documents and car license plates issued by Kosovan authorities. The license plate directive had increased tension between Kosovo and Serbia, as well as Russia, neither of which recognized Kosovo as an independent state. The government's decision to postpone the directive by a month followed consultations with U.S. and EU ambassadors. But more dialogue is needed, said Peter Stano with the European Commission for Foreign Affairs. All open issues between Serbia and Kosovo need to be addressed 
through the EU-facilitated dialogue. This is important for the people, both in Kosovo and Serbia, and this is important for the EU perspective of both countries. Fourteen years after Kosovo declared independence from Serbia, some 50,000 ethnic Serbs in the north still use license plates and papers issued by Serbian authorities, refusing to recognize the Kosovan government. Kosovo's fragile peace is maintained by NATO's K-4 mission, which has over 3,700 troops on the ground. The mission issued a statement on Sunday saying it was prepared to intervene in line with its mandate if stability was jeopardized. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, a new exhibition celebrating the role of female veterans in World War II is held at the famous Royal Air Force Fighter Station of Biggin Hill. A 99-year-old air traffic monitor returned to the airfield to open the exhibition. And there is one mailman in all of France who delivers mail via boat, and he doesn't use addresses to get letters and parcels to the correct locations. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. A new exhibition celebrating heroic women and the roles they played in World War II was opened by a 99-year-old female veteran. And today's Eddie Aitken has the story. A new exhibition celebrating the role of heroic women in World War II has opened at the famous RAF fighter station of Biggin Hill. The star of the show is 99-year-old Anne Galley, who worked as a plotter with the Women's Auxiliary Air Force there from 1941 to 44. We were really called plotters because what we did was plotting the aircraft who were approaching England from Germany, German aircraft, and so that the fighter pilots could attack them as they entered the our area. Gally won medals for her bravery. She carried on with her work when bombs were falling around the plotting room to ensure that communication was kept with the headquarters. The fact that they could just keep on going, um, doing this challenging job in really difficult times is just remarkable. And usually with modesty, that they thought they were just doing their job. They, they didn't want recognition at the time. They just wanted to get on with their job and do what was asked of them. Another female hero of the war was pilot Jackie Mogridge. She worked for the Air Transport Auxiliary were responsible for flying warplanes from the factories where they were made to the fighter airfields ready for action. Her daughter, Candy Atkins, is here to remember her mother's pioneering role in the war. Her favourite plane was a Spitfire. They were longing for the day when a Spitfire came up on their little list of, you know, five different planes a day. And she got in her first Spitfire and it had a, a little funnel on the side and she said, oh, there's a funnel here, what's that? Is it to be sick in? because she was often airsick if she wasn't flying. And the engineer said, no, madam, and that's for gentlemen pilots. But of course, she thought the women just had to cross their legs. Joining the Air Transport Auxiliary in 1940, Mogridge flew 1,300 planes to the waiting fighter pilots throughout the war, including over 80 different types of warplane. It was a time when very few female pilots flew the precious warplanes and her career was groundbreaking. The RAF now have the highest ranking woman in the whole of the armed forces, you know, a complete turnaround. But in those days, no, women were just not expected to or allowed to do those jobs that the men were doing. 
Among the exhibits are Jackie Mogridge's original uniform and a French magazine featuring her on the front cover. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. A fire broke out Monday at Rome's legendary Chinichita film studios. One part of the facility was destroyed, but no casualties were reported. The blaze started around 4 p.m. local time and was soon put out by firefighters. A video released by the fire department shows the extent of the damage. The burned film set was of 15th century Renaissance Florence and has been used in many productions. It was near the house where the Italian version of the Big Brother reality show was filmed. The studios are the home of Italian filmmaking and have been operating since 1937. Since then, they've provided the settings for more than 3,000 films, including 51 Oscar winners. Notable stars, including Sophia Loren, were once regulars there. The pyramids of the ancient Mayan city of Tonina rise high above the jungle of southeastern Mexico, but deep under the site's most important pyramid is a once-forgotten crypt and it's shining new light on the rites and rituals of this civilization. The crypt is revealing more information to researchers on the rites and rituals of this civilization. The chamber was discovered in 2020 and likely built between the 7th and 8th centuries. Inside of it, archaeologists have found 400 vessels containing human ashes mixed with rubber and roots. The findings support a hypothesis that important figures' remains were incorporated into balls used in sport to allow them to live on. A giant sinkhole suddenly appeared in northern Chile last week. Local authorities have launched an investigation into the mysterious crater. The sinkhole is located in a copper mining area more than 400 miles north of the capital, Santiago. The mine is 80% owned by a Canadian mining company. Chilean media have shown aerial images of the sinkhole. It's over 80 feet in diameter and some 650 feet deep. The National Institute of Geology and Mines said they noticed the sinkhole last Saturday. Investigators were sent to the area, but nothing was found down the hole. Local officials say the sinkhole is the result of unmeasured extraction. Concerns remain as the crater is still active and growing. The mining company has not yet responded to requests for comment. Charles Dufort is the only postman in mainland France to make his deliveries by boat. The 24-year-old goes door-to-door in a small wooden motorboat. He's in a wetland region in northern France. I'm Charles DeFort, boat postman. What is different from a normal round is that there is no address in the swamp. We work with people's names. We have a map of showing where each person lives. So we don't work with addresses, only names. DeFort has been on the job for a year. He delivers to some 50 inhabitants. The marshes are renowned for their cauliflower. It's one of a small number of cultivated wetlands in France. Tourists flock to this UNESCO-recognized biosphere reserve in the summer months, but winter can be bleak and the community isolated. So local residents are especially happy to see the postman when there are no tourists in the winter. And still to come, the 456th bridge jumping competition is held on Bosnia's historic old bridge. More than 1,000 people took the plunge off the bridge and into the cold, fast-flowing river below. Stay tuned for more right after the short break. Veterinarians are teaming up with a clothing maker in Tokyo to create a wearable fan for dogs. The pup you see here is about to get some sweet relief. The fan is pretty light and slides into the mesh outfit. Tokyo's dog owners say the heat has been almost unbearable for their little friends this year. 
It's impossible to walk my dogs during the daytime in such hot weather. I usually use dry ice packs to keep the dogs cool, but I think it's easier to walk my dogs if we have this fan. The president of a maternity clothing brand says she got the idea from certain work gear for humans. There are many kind of cooling packs these days in the market that you can put on a dog's neck, but they don't last very long. I often see air-conditioned clothing for humans, so I thought it would be nice if we also had such a product for pets. That's why we made this. This dog-sized vest is $74 and comes in five sizes, a kimono version, and then there's even one for cats. So we often hear about the virtues of raw food. They're full of nutrients and fiber. However, some vegetables are better cooked. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Eating more vegetables in any form is a good idea. Whether you prefer them raw or cooked, they are a terrific source of vitamins, minerals and fiber. But did you know that cooking some vegetables can improve their food value? Heat sometimes activates antioxidants, making them more accessible. Heat can also break down the cell walls of the veggies, releasing nutrients. This is good for digestion and absorption. Steaming alone can turn vegetables into nutrient-dense superfoods. Let's look at five vegetables that are better cooked. Number one is spinach. Raw spinach contains a compound called oxalate acid. It will block some nutrients. Under high temperatures, this acid breaks down. When cooked, spinach releases more iron and calcium. Number two on the list is mushrooms. By cooking mushrooms, nutrients like potassium, niacin, zinc and magnesium are doubled. Number three is carrots. Have you ever heard of carotenoids? These are what give carrots and pumpkin their color. They help to protect your vision and combat cellular damage and are powerful antioxidants. Carotenoids rise sharply when carrots are steamed or boiled. Pan frying actually causes carotenoid levels to drop. Number four on the list is asparagus. Many studies show that asparagus gets a nutrient boost when cooked. One showed that phenolic acid can double when cooked. This nutrient is thought to lower the risk of chronic illnesses. And finally, number five on the list is tomatoes. Cooking substantially boosts the antioxidant known as lycopene. It's easily absorbed by the body and is associated with heart health. It can also prevent other chronic diseases. Tomatoes also contain iron, required by women especially. They also contain vitamin C and calcium. Since the late 1950s, my grandmother always steamed her vegetables and my mother does too. Steaming has been identified as an excellent way to add and maintain nutritional value. Divers delighted a crowd of more than a thousand people as they braved the plunge from a historic bridge in Bosnia over the weekend. Spectators cheered on those taking part in the annual competition. It's a 75-foot leap from a UNESCO World Heritage Site into a cold, fast-flowing river below. This is the 456th time the contest has been held from the old bridge, which was built in 1566 by the Ottomans. It was destroyed during Bosnia's 1992-95 war, but it was rebuilt after the conflict. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan.
NTD News, New York City.